Let's ask God's blessing again on our time this morning. Father, again, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness to us that is expressed in so many ways, Father, but none greater than the gift of eternal life that we have through your Son and his death for us on the cross. We thank you, too, for your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have to study it together and that the availability of it to us. Let us never uh, take that uh, for, for advantage. So as we work through this passage this morning, you know the faults and the weaknesses of the one who speaks. And, Father, just allow your Holy Spirit to bring to us the, the message you would have us to hear and help us to be not only attentive to your word but obedient to it as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is no doubt one of the best-known passages in the New Testament. And its fame is justified. Here Paul succinctly and with vivid imagery summarizes what the Christian's response to God's grace in Christ should be. These two verses are, in effect, a summary of the whole of the Christian life. And as we go through that and think about it, I think you can, can see that. That's why I said there's so much that you can bring in and take out of this short passage. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul piloted his readers through some quite heavy doctrine. And we've had a number of able helmsmen. Now, excuse me, a naval reference here, but I can't help myself after 10-plus years serving in, in that uh, organization. Some able helmsmen have steered us through those waters, sometimes deep and at times a little bit choppy, and have done a fine job in doing that for us in past weeks. And at the beginning of this chapter here, chapter 12, Paul makes, I think, a clear transition from the doctrinal portion of the epistle to the application or practical portion. Now, you see that in other of Paul's letters. You see it in Ephesians pretty clearly in Colossians. Where it's not an arbitrary thing, though. That doesn't mean if you're in a doctrinal part, there's not practical things. And if you're in the practical section, there's not doctrinal things. But there seems to be that kind of, uh, of, um, of um, laying it out that Paul does. And so we have here, really, I think, beginning the practical section of the epistle to the Romans. Now, we live in a practical age, and people want practical teaching. So do I. You know, doctrine is not taught in the Bible that it, just so that it might be known. It is taught in order that we may put it into practice. Remember in John 13, 17, the Lord Jesus said, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You know, so it's a practical thing that we're, we, that, that's this, this gospel and, and, this, and this word of God that we are studying and making real in our lives. But the practical must rest upon a solid doctrinal foundation. Otherwise, it is little more than advice on how to get along in a religious community. If God had not done what he did for us, there would be no compelling reason for us to do now what he tells us to do. You know, anytime we see the word therefore in Scripture, I'm not going to say what you thought I was going to say. We should stop to see why it's there for what it's there for. I left that out on purpose, but I did say it, right? Anytime we see the word therefore in Scripture, our attention ought to perk up. Sometimes, therefore, points to what comes next, but more often it looks back to what has come before. And the, the, the therefore that we have here in chapter 12 and verse 1 begins a, uh, or marks a great division in the book of Romans. We've had a, a number of those, but a couple of very significant ones. One was Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Another is Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here in verse twelve, in chapter 12 and verse 1, we have, I beseech you, therefore, 
brethren. Well, question comes to mind here, is that how far back does this therefore look? We think it's looking back, but just how far does it go? Does it go back to the end of chapter 11? We can make a case for that. Look at verse 36, chapter 11. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Well, yes, that could be the case, but I think it is much more likely that the therefore is intended to follow the entire unfolding of Paul's argument for the gospel began back in chapter 1 and verse 1. So I think what Paul is meaning to say here is something like this. In view of everything I have said up to this point, you must not live for yourselves, but rather give yourselves wholly to God. It is now Paul's purpose to tie together all the doctrinal material he has presented and tell his Roman readers and tell us today what it means for them and for us in everyday terms. All the doctrines of justification, the things we've been talking about for weeks now, justification, grace, election, final salvation, taught in those preceding chapters, form the foundation for the practical exhortations that we're now beginning uh, to look at. That great doctrine of justification by faith, the hallmark, really, of, of the book of Romans. You know, you know, how could a righteous God justify or declare righteous, unrighteous sinners like us? Couldn't do it because of anything we've done, anything we're doing or could ever do, but only because the Lord Jesus Christ became our substitute. He took his sins upon us. He bore them in his body on the cross so that we would not have to pay the penalty for them. And again, I think of 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, in view of all this wonderful truth, summarized here in verse 1 by the mercies of God, how should we then live? And when I say that, when I ask that question, I can't help but think of Francis Schaeffer's book entitled, How Then uh, Should We Live? And I've been kind of, I've read it two or three times over the years. It's one of the most impactful books I've ever read, and I highly recommend it if you haven't done it. it. Some of it is a little bit heavy having, excuse me, to work, to work through. But basically, it's that same thing. How should we then live in light of all that God has done for us? Well, throughout the centuries, Christian martyrs have given and are still giving their lives because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, most of us will never be asked to make that kind of sacrifice. I don't know what the future holds for us. I don't know what we're going to face somewhere down the road. But we are called to offer a radical response to God's mercy, love, and grace. Now, what we're dismissing today is commitment, a lack of commitment in marriage. We see a lot of broken homes, a lack of commitment to church, a lot of Sunday morning Christians, a lack of commitment to evangelism, few uh, believers witness regularly. I mean, that, I love that hymn this morning. It's one of my favorites, um, uh, Cliff. I love to tell a story. Do we love to tell the story? And a lack of commitment to live a consistent Christian life. These two verses, this short passage, represent God's all-important call to consecration and transformation. We're going to consider both of those this morning as we go through uh, these verses. Here through Paul, God calls us to surrender our bodies, our minds, and our wills. And it reminds me of our Lord's response to the lawyer's question in Matthew 22, 37, when he asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And our Lord's answer, um, citing uh, Deuteronomy 6, 5 with slight modification, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And here in these verses, we have the practical side of that. 
Well, the first thing Paul calls his readers to do by way of practical application is to bring a thank offering to God. Verse 1, one more time. I never get tired of reading it, so we'll do it again here. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Paul's request harkens back to the Old Testament system of worship, which was established on the basis of sacrifice. The structure of the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament expanded on the mode of worship. Bulls, goats, lambs, turtle doves, cereal offerings were brought into the sanctuary and sacrificed. You know, sacrifice is really not a pleasant word uh, today. But nevertheless, this is where the Christian life starts. I think we think of sacrifice as the giving away of something of extreme value. And there's certainly an element of that involved in biblical sacrifice. But the primary point, I think, is not that we should lose something, but that we should express something. The whole principle of giving to God is an expression of worship. When we bring our offerings to God on Sunday morning, I'm not talking just about the monetary offerings that we bring, but our praise, our song, our prayers, our meditations, both spoken and unspoken, and teachings. We do not do this from a sense of duty, but we give our offering as an act of worship. And such giving is one way we show our submission to the transcendent excuse me, majesty of God. He is worthy of our praise, devotion, substance, and time. Everything we have, and this is what Paul calls us to do. There's th- I'm, I'm gonna, I want us to know three things about Paul's call here in verse 1 before we take a closer look at the actual call. The first thing to note is the passion of the call, the passion of the call. And this is where Bible uh, translations here might vary just a bit. The, the verb used here is translated variously as beseech, urge, appeal, and exhort or encourage. Uh, Kenneth Wiest, in his expanded translation of the New Testament, has I beg of you, as does J.B. Phillips in his New Testament in modern English. But I think it's interesting to note, in this practical section of the letter, Paul does not flaunt his authority of, of, as, an, um, <clears throat> excuse me, as an apostle. He does not demand compliance of the Roman Christians. Rather, he exhorts them. He urges them. He begs them even to present their bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God, urging believers in us to respond willingly from within themselves, from within ourselves, rather than be influenced or even forced by apostolic authority to conform. So there's the passion of the call that we see there as we start out. And then secondly, there's the scope of the call. And this is pretty straightforward and to the point. Simply, this call is made to believers. That is, to those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, here called brethren. More literally, it is brothers, and some translations have that. But when that is used, it's not to exclude women from the, uh, from the uh, conversation. That term is used to encompass both brothers and sisters in Christ or fellow Christians. And sometimes you'll see that in the translations as well. So the scope is pretty straightforward and direct. And then third, we have the basis of the call, God's mercy. Actually, it's in the plural here, God's mercies. The NIV puts it a little bit differently, but the same point in view of God's mercy. And I like to look at a lot of translations when I'm working on a message. 
Uh, you know, I've, um, I was a NASB guy for a long time. I, I still am at heart, New American Standard Bible. And we all have our versions of choice, and that's fine. And, and I think it's okay to defend them with passion as long as we realize they're all translations and none of them are the actual word of God, per, the, the, the literal inspired word of God. We have to go back to the autographs for that. And there are a number, a number of good ones out there. But I've been using the New King James more lately because I really like it as a translation in the, um, in the way that... Uh, uh, that it flows there. But I, I looked at the NLT, and it has because of all he has done for you. And that's not real, that's close to really what the idea is. But the word here is really mercy, and in a plural, because of God's mercies. God, uh, Paul makes his plea in light of God's mercies, which he has just finished expounding in these 11 chapters that we've been considering in our study. Um, sometimes mercy is used as a synonym for compassion. I've seen that in some of the translations, but I think mercy goes beyond that. You know, I, I, um, our um, son was, in, our youngest son, Todd, was involved in the Awana program for a number of years, and I kind of got, um, uh, I don't want to use the term roped in, because that sounds, gives it a negative uh, uh, connotation. It was like the frog in the water that starts to warm up, and all of a sudden you realize you're stuck. And uh, I was really glad that Todd was involved in that program, because there's a lot of emphasis on Bible memorization, and other things too, but really learning the Word of God is, is a hallmark of that. And uh, over time, they said, well, Mike, you know, I remember Steve Brunson, who was the commander of the, uh, of, uh, of the um, group, and it was our, our Bible church and a number of others that were involved. And he said, well, well, wouldn't you just come down and listen to some verses? You know, kind of like at King's Club. You know, you listen to verses, and, and, and then they, they check things off, and they work for prizes and things like that. Uh, why don't you put a shirt on? You know, you'll look like you're more of the group. And pretty soon I'm a, you know, I'm a leader. I'm not running a club, but pretty soon I'm a leader. But it's a great program, you know, in learning it. But they, they define terms, and one of the terms they defined was mercy. And Awana put it this way, God not giving me the punishment I deserve. And that's a very, very good definition. Arthur Pink, the commentator, the ready inclination of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. But it's God's mercies that are the basis of, of the call here. So I want to look at those three things briefly about the call. Now I want to look at the call itself. In the, th the first part of verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then the rest of it will go as we continue here. That verb translated present can carry the meaning of to give over the use of something for a specific purpose. It is used in a number of places in the, in the um in the New Testament. It's used of Joseph and Mary in Luke chapter 2 and verse 22 when they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. I'm not going to have you turn to those particular verses. I'm just going to mention a couple. We will, I will have you turn to a couple when you start to doze on me. Uh, no. no, I'm just kidding. You know, I never, it's okay. You can laugh at that. It's all right. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of years in front of, uh, in front of classrooms and in classrooms, both on both sides of the lectern, so to speak. And I, I always like to tell people that, you know, and I've taken numerous, numberless, I was trying to say numerous and numberless at the same time. That's an interesting thing there. Numerous courses on how to teach. It doesn't mean I'm any good at it. It just means I've taken a lot of classes on, on these things. But you learn to, you learn to read faces and, and things. One of my favorites is when I see an audience pleading for mercy. When I see that <laughs> then I, then I, in the eyes, then I know it's time to wrap it up. Or if my wife does this real quick, you know, did I get that? You know, or something, uh, something like that. But you do. And, and people, you know, I don't worry about people falling asleep when I'm teaching. And if it happens, I, I understand that people are tired. Life can get crazy at times. And you, you don't get as much sleep. And you really, you're listening. And all of a sudden, you, 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 can't, you can't hang in there. And I understand that. I've been there. Um, 
And I like a little self-deprecatory humor, too, because, uh, you know, you never want to get too puffed up or full of yourself. And then as, as a teacher, uh, I was lecturing in a modern European survey class down at UC, and it was a small class, only 10 people in it. And um, one of them fell out of his chair onto the floor while I, was, while I was talking. So, you know, and he was very embarrassed by it. We tried to make him feel as good as we could. He was from Finneytown, actually, not too far from where we are right now. And <laughs> nothing against Finneytown. But, uh, you know, those things happen. You know, he wasn't hurt. You know, he didn't have far to go, but it can happen. So, so anyway, I'll have you turn to a few verses. It took me a while to get there. But, you know, you've got to break it up a little bit. You know, if you don't, then it gets kind of, I'm droning on and on and on and on there. But anyway, um, looking at the, at the call itself there, and this, we see this verb used in a couple places. One of, of, of Mary and Joseph when they present uh, the Lord Jesus uh, in Jerusalem. Another is in 2 Corinthians 11:2, where we see Paul's desire to present the Corinthian church as a pure bride to her husband, the risen Christ. We see similar language in, in Ephesians 5. 27, and a slightly different context in Colossians 1 as well. But this verb is also a sacrificial term, so it, it fits the context here uh, very well. Now, present, I don't like to overdo this too much, but present is in the aorist tense. And this has led some to take this uh, in the sense of to offer once for all. And I was looking at the translation today that translated it that way, to present your bodies once for all. As a, the problem with that is that the aorist tense in and of itself does not indicate once for all action. I see Evan nodding his head here. He was paying attention at least some of the time when we were going through this. Other, other, other contextual factors have to be there to express that idea, and we don't have them here in this verse. And also, there's no reason in the context to think that Paul would view this offering as something we would do only once. That's not stated here at all. He is simply calling uh, for to us to make this offering while saying nothing about how often it needs to be done. It's kind of like, just do it. And that's not a commercial there for Nike. As a matter of fact, I'm partial to uh, New Balance, although I don't have them um, on this morning. But a call for decisive action is what we have here in verse 1. In effect, urging believers, urging us to consecrate ourselves, to set ourselves apart to God and for his service. And consecration in this context is a radical separation from a secular worldview that we find ourselves living in and among and a way of life, to adopt instead a Christ-like purpose and way of life. And here, bodies is more than just a physical body. I know that's the word that's used here. It refers to the whole person. Consecration to God involves one's whole self. Now, many translations here in verse 1 speak of living sacrifices and then qualify that with holy and pleasing to God. In fact, the one I read this morning does that as well. And that's why I say you get some differences when you look at the at the versions, not in ultimately in what they say, but exactly the phraseology of how they say it. But the original text speaks of a sacrifice and follows that with three qualifiers, three adjectives. In other words, living is not separated from holy and pleasing to God. I like the Net Bible's translation. Uh, they, I think Dave's got that open here today, as he usually does at our studies. Uh, it says it this way, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God. And that's a, a personal preference there, the way that I like to look at the wording there. But alive or living marks a difference from the general run of sacrifices. It's true that animal sacrifices or animal victims were living when they were brought to the altar, but as offered, they were dead. And Paul can speak of believers as dying, as he did in chapter 6, verse 2, dying to sin, but his emphasis is on the glorious life they live with Christ. 
also brought forth very quick, uh, very clearly in chapter six, and Jack Bainline brought that to us. I think Jack's running somewhere today, but um, and did that for us. We are alive from the dead, as offered. We are alive, and the sacrifice that Paul uh, speaks of here and demands is not the destruction of, but the full energy of life. It is positive, and it's dynamic. Well, the sacrifice is also holy, which we understand, or I understand, I shouldn't speak for others, as I understand, is consecrated or dedicated, set apart to and for God. It is given over entirely to him. Uh, The believer is his alone. It's interesting, you've heard this before, I'm sure, that the word holy here is used as a noun, is translated saints uh, quite commonly in the New Testament. You don't re- ever see anybody referred to as Saint so-and-so. We're celebrating St. Patrick's Day, but Scripture doesn't teach it that way. But believers are saints. We are set apart to God and for his service. Well, if holy describes the, the quality of life we should pursue, then pleasing to God or acceptable, again, you see both of those, depending which version you have, describes its results. The gospel radically reorients our aim in life so that we are no longer seeking to please others or even ourselves, but to please our Heavenly Father. We are his children by his grace. And in view of this, we long to please him. Well, why should we do this? Why should Christians offer themselves as living sacrifices to God? We see that there in the second part of verse 1. Which is your reasonable service? Now, here's where translations vary a little bit. Uh, the last words of the last phrase of verse 1 have been translated different ways. Uh, my version here and others have your reasonable service. You'll see that. Uh, others have your spiritual worship or something like that. Uh, the NASB has your spiritual service of worship. Then in a marginal note, they have rational service, trying to get both of them into the picture there. And it's been suggested by some, and again, I haven't poured that deeply into it. I have my dictionaries at home, and I look at them and see how they uh, break these things down there, that uh, the words used here may actually embrace both ideas, reasonable and spiritual, at the same time. But reasonable or rational is really a more literal rendering. You know, the word there, logikos, gives us our word logical, which means reasonable or according to reason. So I, I prefer reasonable service here. Uh, myself. Earlier, Paul had stated that believers presenting their same verb here, presenting we had before, their bodies to sin didn't make logical sense. Why would freed slaves, that is, believers in Lord Jesus Christ, continue to serve their old master, that is, sin? However, offering our bodies to serve the interests of our new master, the Lord Jesus Christ, is completely logical, very much in keeping with good sense and good reason. It's seen by Paul as a reasonable, logical response of the saints given the mercies of God. You know, think about it. What could be more logical and reasonable than offering our whole selves to God in thanksgiving, praise, worship, and adoration? The only fitting response to love so amazing, so divine. To borrow a phrase from one of the lines in the, the great Isaac Watts hymn, When I Survey the Wonders Cross. The problem really is that we resist giving ourselves to God. We'll give him things. You know the three T's, treasure, time, and talent? You've probably heard that before in, 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 in this context. We'll give him things. It's relatively easy to give God money, even though here we are frequently far less than generous in that respect. But that's something that's fairly easy to do. We will even give God a certain amount of our time and our talents and very worthy things. They're, they're great to be involved in. 
Think of them. Kids Club, Camp, VBS, Charitable Work, all of them very good in and of themselves and part of the Lord's work. But we resist giving ourselves. And yet without ourselves, these other gifts really don't mean anything to God. We will begin to understand the Christian life only when we understand that God does not want our treasure or our time or our talent without ourselves. And here's where I will have you turn to a passage. And that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I like to read verses 1 through 5. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in the great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep uh, poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely uh, willing imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. And that's what strikes me about this. But they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Jesus died for us. He loves us. So when the Bible speaks of reasonable service, as it does here, it means that God wants us not some substitution. It is my reasonable service in that if the Son of God has died for me, then the least I can do is live for him. Well, at first one, the first part there, the verse itself, calls for a decisive commitment. Verse 2 deals with the keeping of that commitment. So let's read verse 2 again. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. A contrast is presented in this verse between what we are not to do and what we are to do. Paul here is contrasting conformity with transformation. We are to flee from one to the other. To present our bodies as living sacrifices entails not being conformed to the world or to the pattern of this world, as NIV puts it. The Greek verse, is Jay still here? The Greek verb here, Jay. I'm going to say it for you, buddy. Sus kematizo. Uh, try to say that three times real fast. I don't recommend it because you're probably going to. This is an inside thing here. It's the only reason we're doing this. But we, in, our, in, our, in our Greek group that meets biweekly, we, um, we, uh, we, we're going through um, uh, Mark, part of Mark's gospel right now. And I always have them read the verse first. And it's not the favorite activity for folks. But, again, it's good to do that. So, uh, yeah, but I get it. Did I get it, Jay? I think it was pretty close. I'll take your word for it. Okay. <laughs> but the verb here is a compound of the preposition with, with the term from which we get our English word schematic, uh, which gives us something like to be molded according to a pattern. And so I think a good translation of this first part of verse 2 is something like this. Do not let the world in which you live force you into its scheme of thinking and behaving. J.B. Phillips in the New Testament Modern English, it puts it well, and I think famously here, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. And I really like that way of putting it. Paul is speaking about being squeezed by the thinking of this age into a lifestyle that, while perfectly acceptable to the world around us, is perfectly unacceptable to God. The bottom line is that believers are in the world for witness, not conformity. 
And it's interesting here, the word world, some, some translations have, is not the word we would expect to see here. Rather, it's the word that's really literally translated age, and that's the way it's usually rendered, which refers to the spirit of the times. You know, the system of beliefs and values current at a given time uh, in the world. The world's uh, system of this age is evil, Paul tells us in Galatians 1 and verse 4, and is dominated by the God of this age, Satan, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. In our unsaved days, we all walked according to the age of this world or the course of this world, I think uh, many of, of them put it, Ephesians 2, 2, guided by its moral and religious principles, which are contrary to God and opposed to Christ and therefore are not to be allowed to fashion the life of the Christian, as they assuredly will unless we keep ourselves separate from them. You know, the world has this way of thinking and doing things, and it's exerting pressure on Christians to conform to them. You know, it has its fads and its fashions. They change with each generation. Have you noticed that, how that, that's, that's the case? Some even come back again. You know, I still got a pair of bell bottoms hanging in my closet at home. No, actually, I, I do not. And I, I think I can tell you uh, very safely here, I have never worn a pair of bell-bottoms. If you have and you like them, that's well and good. But could you picture me in a pair of those? No, I don't, I, I don't think so. But not to make light of this here and to get it back onto a serious note. The world exerts pressure on us all, not only in such minor matters as dress and diet, but in such far more serious areas of life as morals, ethical standards, and religious beliefs. Somebody said this, I didn't jot down who it was, that the world is the devil's lair for sinners and his lure for the saints. And I like that. The world is the devil's lair for sinners and his lure for the saints. It is human life and society with God left out. Believers whose bodies have been laid on the altar, well, that was close, on the altar for God will not be conformed to the world. They are morally changed. Their lives are not molded from without they are changed from within to be increasingly like the Lord Jesus Christ. I think, the, uh, I think it's safe to say this, at least in my, in my mind it is. The single greatest social pressure a person faces is conformity. I don't care what age you are, in school, at work, on the, you know, and all, all through life. Conformity is something that is really, really pressing upon us. Those who march to the beat of a different drummer are considered nerds or fools or even worse. What saps the strength of the Christian witness in our day is the Christian community's increasing conformity to the world around them. The things we cherish, the things we follow, are the things the world considers foolish and rubbish. But we don't want to. We don't want to be seen as foolish. We we don't you know times and we just don't want to stand out. Yet that is exactly what we were called to be. Fools for Christ's sake, as Paul put it in a couple of places in the book of First Corinthians. The goal of the Christian life is not merely nonconformity, which is what we're called to do here as well, which may be, I think, maybe the easier part, but also transformation. And that's in the second part of the verse there, uh, that you may prove, let's see here, but by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The verb used here is translated transfigure in the transfiguration accounts in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. The only other place it appears in the New Testament is in 2 Corinthians 3.18. I'm going to turn there. If you'd like to, it's okay, but it's just the one verse, so if you'd rather uh, just listen, that's fine. But um, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And I think that's a very good commentary on what we're looking at here uh, this morning. The prefix trans, added to the word formed in verse 2, means above and beyond the forms of this world. Living as Christians means we do not live by the drumbeat of this world, but by a higher calling, the calling of God. And when we do that, the form of our life changes. We are not conformed to this dying age, but our lives are transformed by the power of God. And so the dedicated life is also the transformed life. Be transformed, actually better is keep on being transformed. It's a present tense, passive voice command. I remember one time in Sunday school, somebody, I think it was Amy, how can you have a passive command? Well, here is one right here. Be uh, transformed. Continue to be or can keep on being transformed. As we respond to the call through submission, the Lord does the transforming. That's the important part. We do not do it. He does it. Um, we learn to view the world through the grid of Scripture, and we learn to respond as Scripture prescribes as the indwelling Holy Spirit guides and directs us. You know, we run into problems when we get that grid turned around. You know, if we, if we view Scripture through the grid of the world, we're going to run into trouble. We need to view the world through the grid of Scripture. I just want to make one little side note comment here on this. This is just one of those little, I used to call them um, when I was teaching, well, I'm still teaching, but in my, in my secular classes, little known and little cared about facts. But, uh, you know, I used to have, uh, well, I was known for a number of things in those days, one of which my students would tell you was, you know, if they had a question, you know, the best answer is I don't know if you don't know. I found out early on if you try to answer and you don't know, you're, you're going to have a problem. And so I learned, from, I learned that really quickly when some 18, 20-year-olds, you know, schooled me on that. But um, the other one was that some things are good, you know, good to know, the others you, you need to know, the others you can look up. So if I got a question, I, you know, I said, well, you can look that one up, you know, or something, something like that. But a little sideboard here is on this idea of, of this is, I said it's a passive thing. It's done to us. You know, when you have a passive, you know, again, not to bore you with grammatical things, but when you have a passive ver- uh, voice verb, there's an agent doing that. You're not doing it. Somebody else is doing it. When that age is not, is not actually mentioned many times in the New Testament, it's God doing it. God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. That's called a divine passive. So there's something that you can, you can put into your repertoire somewhere down there. Quit grinning back there, Jay. You can put that in your uh, uh, repertoire. But that's a divine passive, God doing that uh, in, our, in our lives. Well, transformation and mind renewal happen for a purpose, and that's the end here of verse 2. Um, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. To prove here means to prove by testing, and so approve. Some translations take the three adjectives Paul uses here and apply them directly to God's will, and you'll have something like this, speaking of his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, I'm not convinced that's the best way to take the... uh, uh, original language here. I think maybe rather we should see these three adjectives as meaning the thing that is good, pleasing, and perfect. In other words, Paul is saying God's will itself is what is good or right, well-pleasing or acceptable to him, and perfect or complete. And so I like a rendering something like this, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, that which is good, pleasing, and perfect. While specifics differ, God's general will for each of us is that we grow into spiritual maturity and become more like Christ, that our lives become more fully set apart 
and consecrated by the Holy Spirit and that our minds are changed. But still, the Christian has received the ability to prove what God's will is in concrete and specific situations. The renewal of our minds, as we've been talking about here, enables us to discern what is good or right, what is well-pleasing to God, and what is perfect or complete. And having discerned it, that same renewal sets the believer to the task of performing what is seen as the will of God. Well, many commentators, among them our beloved Dave Reed, make a comment something like this. The problem with living sacrifices is they tend to crawl off the altar. And, and I've seen that in a number of different places. Think about it. It's, you can make the commitment pretty quickly. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. But there's nothing holding us up there. You're not roped down on that altar. You know, and it's very easy to slide off or to crawl off. So I'm going to end today's uh, message with uh, an exhortation that Dave gives on his talk on this, on this passage. Are you still on the altar or have you crawled off? Let's pray. Father, again, we just thank you for this time that we could uh, be together on this Lord's Day. We thank you for the time we could spend in your word. We thank you for what it teaches us about yourself, what it teaches us about your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and also what it teaches us about how you would have us live our lives. So, Father, help us to set ourselves apart to you, to dedicate ourselves to you and to your service, and help us to be faithful to that and have our minds transformed by your word as the Holy Spirit guides and directs us. So, again, thank you for this time, um, and we just uh, appreciate it and ask your blessing on us as we go from this place. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.